Welcome to the Palestine Pod. We are talking all things related to the Great Escape. All of these men were victim of the apartheid states criminalizing armed resistance, which we know is their right under international law. They're all from Jenin, the very same city which in 2002, the Israeli military attacked. And I think it's important for us to keep in mind what this city means to the story of Palestinian resistance. It has, for Palestinians, for many decades, symbolized Palestinian hope. The apartheid state's police went on a wild goose chase to find these political prisoners. Also engaged in torture and abuse of other Palestinian political prisoners as an act of revenge. Even though four out of six of them have been recaptured, it's still a moment of celebration that should remind us of the possibility of freedom and that we should continue to work for it and struggle for it because it is our only option. This the Palestine pod. Palestine pod. Hello and welcome to episode 24 of the Palestine Pod, the weekly podcast where we break down the latest headlines dealing with Palestine from all over the world and bring you stories, commentary, and interviews with the aim of supporting the Palestinian struggle for justice and equal rights. I'm one of your hosts, Lara E. You might know me from Instagram as at Gazan Girl, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mikey B. What's up, y'all? Mikey B on TikTok. Michael Scherzer on Instagram. You can call me Mikey Intifada if you were rooting for the Jews who escaped concentration camps with spoons, but think the ones who did it in Palestine are terrorists. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. I, I didn't realize that Jews in the Holocaust were escaping concentration camps by using these these same techniques, but I think it's, it's a wild parallel. Before we get into today's episode, please like, comment, subscribe if you hang out with us on YouTube. If you're listening on a podcast app, subscribe and leave a review. As always, you can find our full episodes and sources at palestinepod.com. And if you want to get involved in the conversation, reach out to us at palestinepod at gmail.com and give us a follow on Instagram at thepalestinepod. So today, Michael, we are talking all things related to the great escape. Last week on September 6th, six Palestinian political prisoners escaped from the high-security Israeli dungeon called Gilboa Prison. Reports say that the six Palestinians dug their escape tunnel with a rusty spoon while the colonial guard in the watchtower, which was directly above them, had fallen asleep. The photo that shocked and humiliated the apartheid state and was seen around the world shows a colonial officer standing above the tunnel in the morning after the escape on the other side of the prison, completely bewildered. Now, in the aftermath of the Great Escape, the apartheid state's police, soldiers, and agents from its internal security agency, the Shin Bet, went on a wild goose chase to find these political prisoners. They used sniffer dogs and set up checkpoints in the areas surrounding the Gilboa prison. The apartheid state also engaged in torture and abuse of other Palestinian political prisoners as an act of revenge. So we saw on social media videos circulating showing the abuse. We also know that on September 8th, 2021, armed Israeli forces raided Section 6 of the Negev prison for Palestinian political prisoners and attacked prisoners. So we see the apartheid state going absolutely ballistic in the aftermath of the escape of these prisoners and punishing the other prisoners that it continues to hold, because we of course know that Israel holds 
somewhere around 4,700 Palestinians, men, women, and children as political prisoners in one of its many, many, many dungeons across Israel. And so we saw photos of that abuse taking place as well in the aftermath. Yeah, the Gilboa prison is known as the safe among Zionists. And those Palestinians are known as the key. Before we discuss the stories of these men who freed themselves from a concentration camp inside of Palestine, let's provide some context, shall we? The Zionists are always like, but what's the context? Well, here is the context. Since 1967, Israel has imprisoned more than 700,000 Palestinians from occupied West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem. Israel imprisons Palestinians from the occupied areas inside of Israel, which is illegal under international law. According to Amnesty International, Israel's ruthless policy of holding Palestinian prisoners arrested in occupied Palestinian territories in prisons inside of Israel is a flagrant violation of the Fourth Geneva Convention. It is unlawful and cruel, and the consequences for the imprisoned person and their loved ones, who are often deprived from seeing them for months and at time years on end, can be devastating. Palestinians who are charged with an offense are subjected to military courts that have been condemned by every relevant human rights organization. According to Amnesty International, virtually all cases of Palestinians brought before Israeli military courts end in convictions. Most convictions are a result of plea bargains. This has nothing to do with how good they are at their job and everything to do with how corrupt their court systems are. This is because Palestinian defendants know the entire system is so unfair that if they even go to trial, they'll be convicted and given a longer sentence. About 1,300 complaints of torture against Israeli authorities have been filed with Israel's Justice Ministry between 2001 and June 2020, which have resulted in the grand total of one criminal investigation and get this, zero prosecutions. <laughs> Sounds fair. Am I right? Israel's always like, oh, well, we'll investigate. Yeah. And then the follow-up is you never hear about it again. So it's like every time they say we'll investigate, it just disappears. And this is proof of that. It reminds me of a story that came out in the U.S. recently about an FBI agent who investigates child pornography being arrested for child pornography. Great. You know? Mm -hmm. They say, find something you love. You'll never work a day in your life. You're horrible. <laughs> the Israeli rights group Public Committee Against Torture reported in June 2019 that of the more than 100 complaints of alleged torture, which I feel like is a generous use of the word alleged. Very. It it filed over the last five years at the hands of Israel's internal security service, Shin Bet, 
31% involved physical violence, 40% painful and prolonged shackling or use of stress positions, 66% sleep deprivation, 61% threats, and 27% sexual harassment and humiliation. Security forces also routinely use unnecessary force against children during arrests, which often take place in the middle of the night, and physical abuse when they are in custody. In addition to physical violence, prolonged shackling, stress positions, and sleep deprivation, other abusive practices employed by Israel against Palestinian prisoners include the use of isolation, solitary confinement, restrictions on and denial of family visits, deliberate medical neglect, prisoners with serious health problems, including illnesses such as cancer, causing much suffering and leading to many unnecessary premature deaths. The harsh conditions endured by Palestinians in Israel's prisons has prompted numerous hunger strikes, individual and mass, over the years. The occupation uses a procedure known as administrative detention, which we've covered extensively on this podcast before, to imprison Palestinians without charge or trial for months or years. Administrative detention orders are normally issued for one to six month periods, but can be extended indefinitely. There are currently, as of September 2021, 520 Palestinians being held in administrative detention. Israel uses administrative detention almost exclusively against Palestinians and very rarely against Jewish Israelis. According to Human Rights Watch, over nearly 54 years of occupation, Israel has held not more than a handful of Jewish Israelis. In contrast, since 1967, approximately 100,000 administrative detention orders have been issued against Palestinians. In May 2012, amid a wave of hunger strikes protesting the use of administrative detention, Israeli Public Security Minister Yitzhak Aronovich implicitly admitted that Israel uses it for reasons other than stated urgent security concerns, urging authorities to use it only if there's a need. All of this information comes from the IMEU. Thanks, Michael, for that context. There's a lot of important information there. And I think the thing to keep in mind is that these men, their arrest and detention by Israel is in and of itself a violation of their human rights. Because these men, five of them, we know that five out of six of them were engaged in armed struggle against the apartheid state, which we know is their right under international law. Just to be clear, at least four of these men were serving life sentences. So you're talking about a total deprivation of freedom for engaging in their right to resist the colonial regime. And as you mentioned, one of the men was being held under an administrative detention order. But all of these men were victim of the apartheid states criminalizing 
armed resistance against itself, which we know is their right under international law. There's many sources which affirm this, but I'll just mention two here. We know that as early as 1974, Resolution 3314 of the United Nations General Assembly prohibited states from, quote, any military occupation, however temporary. And this resolution went on to affirm the right, quote, to self-determination, freedom and independence of peoples forcibly deprived of that right, particularly peoples under colonial and racist regimes and other forms of alien domination, close quote, and noted the right of the occupied to quote, struggle and to seek and receive support in that effort. Now in December, 1982, the UN General Assembly clarified what it really meant to quote, struggle and to seek and receive support by specifically outlining that armed resistance was a legitimate weapon of peoples struggling for independence, territorial integrity, national unity, and liberation from colonial and foreign domination. So this is UN General Assembly Resolution 3743, which basically removed any doubt or debate over the lawful entitlement of occupied people to resist occupying forces by means including armed resistance. And so for these men that were charged of many of them, you know, committing acts of armed resistance in the first and second intifadas, this was their right to do so because they were on occupied land. They come from, they come from Janine, which is an occupied city in the West Bank. And we can talk about the history of Janine and how it is a center of Palestinian resistance in the occupied West Bank. But they were in their right when they committed those acts. And so that is something that we need to absolutely center in this story, because these men who are escaping these prisons are not doing so after having been charged and prosecuted of crimes that they should be put away for, but rather by the very entity who they are resisting in this struggle against apartheid and colonial domination. So the men range in age between 26 and 49. And the 26-year-old Monedal Yaqub was the individual who was being jailed by apartheid Israel since 2019 without charge. He comes from Yabad town in Janine. Yeah, they're all from Janine. They're all from Janine. And I think it's important for us to keep in mind, you know, what what this city means to the story of Palestinian resistance. Janine's in the northern occupied West Bank, and it has, for Palestinians, for many, many decades, symbolized Palestinian hope and steadfastness. It's a very lively cultural hub, so it's famous for its freedom theater and cinemas and all sorts of, you know, being a center really for art and resistance. It's also known for its very rich agriculture. Today, Janine is surrounded by Israeli military checkpoints, the Israeli apartheid wall, like many of the other cities in the occupied West Bank, it's essentially cut off from other Palestinian cities. But its steadfastness and resistance really goes back to the British occupation of historic Palestine. So it was also a center during the 1936 to 1939 Great Arab Revolt. And that history really continues. So even following the Nakba in 1948, when we know that Israel destroyed hundreds of Palestinian towns and villages, thousands of Palestinians were driven from Haifa, which then became what is known as Israel today, and many found refuge in Janine. So a lot of the people living in Janine are actually 1948 refugees. 
and many of them live in the Janine refugee camp, which was founded in 1953. Today, there's something like 16,000 Palestinian refugees that continue to live in that camp, and they are continuing to demand their right to return to their homes and 48s, which is their internationally enshrined right of return that we have spoken about. These men come from this city, the very same city which in 2002, the Israeli military attacked by demolishing the internationally known theater and destroying over 400 Palestinian homes. Theater was rebuilt by Palestinians. And again, it's just a, a further example of Palestinian determination to live no matter, no matter what. One of the individuals who was involved in the Great Escape is actually a co-founder of the Freedom Theater. So Zechariah Zubaydi was one of the founders of the Freedom Theater. He had been imprisoned by Israel without a formal conviction, and he was considered sort of one of the leaders of the escape. Also, I wanna mention about Zechariah Zubaydi, something that I, some research that I did on him that I found was that he actually lost his mother and his brother in quote unquote confrontations with the Israeli occupation forces and his own house in Janine was demolished. So this is somebody who lost very close family members because of the occupation, whose own home was demolished by the occupation and who as a result has made the choice to resist against the occupation. And I just want people to reflect on you know, what it would mean to lose your mother, to lose your brother, to lose your house, and what you would do. How long would you wait before resisting? And when you, and when you see the same thing happening over and over and over again in the city that you live in, you know, with hundreds of homes being demolished in Janine, with the Israeli army, in, you know, entering Janine and, and carrying out various military assaults, right? There's stories of this time and again. At what point do you say enough is enough and I'm going to fight for my rights, my community's right, my family's right to be free from all of this, to be free from colonial subjugation, which is a permanent experience for Palestinians who live in the occupied West Bank. So, you know, I think it's important to understand who these people are, a little bit about their stories. And I mean, I couldn't find a ton about all of them, but I think this is just one important case study, taking Zachariah Zubaydah and understanding like, okay, this is what this guy went through. And this is how he ended up in this prison because of his resistance activities. And this is also what drives his will to be free, right? So to learn more about the massacre of Janine, there is a great documentary by Mohammed Bakri called Janine Janine. And it was so powerful that the Zionists actually sued Bakri to make sure that it wouldn't be allowed to be distributed. And they brought slander charges against him. The judge said in her verdict that Bakri had not shown good faith and he was charged with a large sum to pay for the movie that he made. That's insane. I mean, it's yeah. it's just crazy to me. Like, 
the apartheid regime. They will sue over a movie. They're so threatened by things. They committed the massacre. Yeah. He documented it. And they were like, no, we're going to sue you, actually. They were like, how dare you? We're going to sue you for showing our war crimes. Insanity. Absolute insanity. The entire town of Silat al-Dahr in Janine is currently on strike in solidarity with the political prisoners. So your favorite Silicon Valley settler, Naftali Bennett, described the Great Escape as a quote-unquote serious incident. Hamas called the escape, quote, real defeats for Israel's security system. Qadura Faris, who is the head of the Palestinian Prisoners Club, described the brazen escape as a victory against the Israeli security system. And another figure in the Palestinian resistance movement described the escape as a, quote, heroic act that was a severe blow to the Israeli army and Israel's entire security apparatus. He continued that this is a long and open struggle and the occupation must understand the lesson well. Our people will never surrender and Israel's terrorism will not succeed in breaking the will of our people. Also, do you know if Mahmoud Abbas said anything about this? I don't, but I'd actually heard that the Palestinian Authority was cooperating with the occupation in locating political prisoners. And we should say, as of Sunday, September 12th, four out of the six men have been recaptured by the Zionist occupation. In the past week, we've seen a tremendous outpour of support and joy and jubilation from everyday people in the streets of Palestine who were celebrating this victory, even if short-lived, because freedom, no matter how long you have it for, is sweet. Yeah, I mean, I I was super happy when I heard about the story. I mean, just completely elated because I know that they felt freedom, right? We also realize in that moment that no matter how much money the apartheid state will spend on weapons and no matter how much money the United States pours into supporting this apartheid regime and no matter how much surveillance technology they develop, it's simply no match for the human will to be free. And I think it's really a testament to the fact that we're, we're going to be free one day. You know, it's been over a hundred years of colonialism. We're still here and it just just doesn't matter how big the bombs get, how high the walls get, you know, how many snipers and guns they have. I mean, the guy, the fucking guy, he fell asleep. Like he was sitting there, he had all the, you know, he had all the technology, he had all the the, you know, sniper towers, weapons, everything he, you know, everything you would want, right? To keep these men in prison. And he just fell asleep. And they were like, okay, we're leaving even though four out of six of them have been recaptured. And by the way, the conditions that they have now been subject to are absolutely horrible. We know that their lawyer, Khaled Mahajna, said that the Shinbait was hiding all information related to their conditions now that they have been recaptured. The colonial court denied the client's access to their lawyer. Several photos have been circulating showing that the men captured have been subject to torture. This is all nothing new here. Michael, you talked about this a little bit earlier. We know that Palestinian prisoners in Israeli captivity are regularly subject to torture, denial of visits, denial of medical care, denial of lawyers. And in the words of Professor Nora Erekat, she says this entire system is, quote, tantamount to a crime against humanity. But all this aside, it's still a moment of celebration. And it's still a moment that should remind us of 
the possibility of freedom and that we should continue to work for it and struggle for it because you know, it is our only option. Life is not worth living when you are behind bars. Life is not worth living when you are denied your freedom. And so your only option is to struggle for your freedom. A few weeks ago, it was Ben and Jerry's. This week, Palestinians dug freedom with a spoon. <laughs> the Zionists are having an absolute conniption over ice cream and the way you eat it. <laughs> exactly. Oh, man. They're horrible. Okay, so there's a fantastic video that was put out by Subi Taha, and it details the history of Palestinian women providing information to people inside of Palestinian prisons about how to escape through coded language. And I just oh. want to play the video in its entirety because it's so brilliant. It's If you care at all about the history of Palestine, it's one of those things where you just have to sort of sit back and watch. So, Okay, let's do it. In light of the six Palestinians successfully escaping from Israeli prison, I'd like to share a Palestinian tradition that was created to help Palestinians escape from jail. It is a style of traditional Palestinian folk song called Tarwide, which is a coded language, a coded style of song used to send encrypted messages to those who are in prison. And this dates back even before the establishment of Israel in 1948, back during the British colonization, when an overwhelming amount of Palestinians were being wrongfully imprisoned just for speaking up against the British rule. So this left a huge population of Palestinian women whose brother or father or husband or son was being held in prison for no reason. Now this was obviously before air conditioning existed, so pretty much all the prison cells had windows to the outside with those metal bars going across them. So these Palestinian women would walk along the exterior walls of these prisons and sing these songs to communicate with their loved ones in prison. So from the view of the British or Israeli occupier, it just looks like there's a random Palestinian woman walking around singing folk songs when she's actually sending a message to her husband or her brother about how she's going to help him escape from the prison. And to encrypt the message, they would add the letter L or Lam in Arabi in between words and letters repeatedly to make it sound like gibberish or sound like some other Palestinian dialect that the occupiers don't understand. Because obviously the occupiers have Arabic translators, but not ones good enough to understand a coded language. So in one version of this song style, there is a Palestinian woman who is communicating with her father who was in jail, and she's telling him how much she misses him, and then she gives him instructions on how to escape. In the first line, she explains where the prison is in relation to their village, so that whenever he escapes, he knows which direction to run. But instead of just saying the village is north, or dirishmali, she sings it and uses poetry and adds the letter L. So in order to say she'll say then she explains which direction the front door of the prison is facing so that whenever he escapes through the front door he knows which direction to run because as she already told him the village is north so if the door is facing the north all he has to do is get out the front door and run straight and he'll eventually hit their village 
So to communicate this, she recites And then to communicate how much she misses him, she recites There's another version of this song style that shows how they would use poetry and analogies and symbolism to encrypt the messages on top of the L trick. Here, the woman is trying to comfort her loved one who's stuck in prison. And to express this, she says, the gazelle that's stuck inside won't be in there for too long. And she recites this by saying, Then she expresses that she doesn't want new clothes, she doesn't want a new belt, she just wants to see her loved one free. And so she recites, Ugh, it breaks my heart, but at the same time, it's just so beautiful and rich and ugh. Since the British colonized the land over a hundred years ago, up to today with Israel's occupation of the land, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Palestinians have been forced to endure wrongful imprisonment without a proper trial being tortured in prison. Now there's even a problem with what people are calling a corpse prison, where the Israeli authorities are holding the dead bodies of Palestinians for no reason and not allowing their families to properly bury them. That is what Palestinians are having to struggle through to this day in 2021. And they've been going through this for over a hundred years now. And this Terwide style of folk song is just one of many examples of how strong and resilient the Palestinian people are. Ya Palestine, ya bladi, That video was awesome. Yeah. I don't even know how he knows all this stuff. <laughs> it's crazy. Did he read this yeah. in a book somewhere or was this like an oral tradition that was passed to him by somebody who, you know, knew somebody whose grandfather was imprisoned by the British and then the Zionists, you know what I mean? This one's going to be tough to cite. Shout out to our <laughs> researcher Syriana. <laughs> yeah. Good I luck. mean, maybe, maybe. I mean, we'll see. Maybe, you know, it's possible. It's in a scholarly article somewhere. It's possible. Yeah. But uh, it's amazing. It's it's so inspiring. It's so, yeah. so, so inspiring. And, you know, these knowing that these stories have been there since the inception of the struggle against colonialism, and then knowing, like I said, you know, here we are today, over 100 years in, and we're still struggling. And that, to me, is like the real indication that we have to keep hope you know yeah that that was just so lovely also i love to listen to sobri sing yeah yeah he's got a great voice and to me it was it was very interesting how ingrained poetry and performance art is with palestinian resistance right so much so that like we sort of couple the two and we think of Palestinian poets like Mahmoud Darwish, right? Mm -hmm. He was described as a resistance poet and placed under house arrest when his poem Identity Card was Mm -hmm. turned into a protest song. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was in prison for re- reading poetry, literally, and quote unquote, traveling between villages without a permit, AKA moving on his land. Yeah. It's crazy. Like we're so artistic and it just comes so naturally, you know, they can only be jealous of us. Cause it's like, what it like, you know, they have Arabic translators, but your Arabic translators aren't going to do shit when we start coming up with different languages and like languages that we only, we would understand, even though we haven't even previously discussed what the language would be, but it was just something that, you know, the ingenuity is to me so, so, so inspiring, so inspiring. And it's so natural. And that's actually another thing that we can parallel with Jews in concentration camps where Yiddish could be used sometimes to discuss escape plans because the Nazis didn't really, they had people who translated, but again, they didn't have people who knew slang. They didn't know certain phrases. We were able to disguise our messages in a similar way. I want to read really quickly the poem, The Prison Cell by Darwish. It is possible. It is possible, especially now, to ride a horse inside a prison cell and run away. It is possible for prison walls to disappear, for the cell to become a distant land without frontiers. What did you do with the walls? I gave them back to the rocks. And what did you do with the ceiling? I turned it into a saddle. And your chain? I turned it into a pencil. The prison guard got angry. He put an end to my dialogue. He said he didn't care for poetry and bolted the door of my cell. He came back to see me in the morning. He shouted at me. Where did all this water come from? I brought it from the Nile. And the trees? From the orchids of Damascus. And the music? From my heartbeat. The prison guard got mad. He put an end to my dialogue. He said he didn't like my poetry and bolted the door of my cell. But he returned in the evening. Where did this moon come from? From the nights of Baghdad. And the wine? From the vineyards of Algiers. And this freedom? From the chain you tied me with last night. The prison guard grew so sad, he begged me to give him back his freedom. Darwish is one of those examples of creative and artistic and extremely influential Palestinians. But when you realize, again, he was a refugee. His village was completely destroyed. His family and him were expelled from their village under a shower of bombs. The village was entirely occupied and later raised by the terrorist organization, the IDF. Yeah. He lived in refugee camps for a while, and then eventually... He found his way to Haifa, and that's when I believe he was put under house arrest for something like 10 years because of his poetry and art. Yeah, he also lived for many years in exile in Beirut and in Paris. He is the author of over 30 books of poetry and eight books of prose. He earned the Lanel Cultural Freedom Prize. Very well decorated and has a number of awards dedicated to his success and prolific poetry career. Yeah, I don't think there's anyone more famous than Mahmoud Darwish in terms of representing Palestinian art history. Interesting 
anecdote that I heard from Dr. Angela Davis on a Palestinian panel was that George Jackson, the individual, the Soledad brother who I've mentioned on previous episodes, inside of George Jackson's cell was a book of poetry that somebody thought George Jackson wrote, but it was actually Mahmoud Darwish. And so that just shows you the similarities between the political prisoners in the United States and the political prisoners in Palestine, that somebody reading Darwish's poetry because it was inside of George Jackson's cell would mistake it for his actual situation. Wow. That's amazing. It's wild because Prison Break was one of my favorite shows was it growing really? up. Yeah, I absolutely loved the show Prison Break. And I sort of always identified with the idea of breaking out of an unjust situation. Right. And it's just Palestinians blew the show out of the water with real life. Right. And yet some people are still not paying attention. Some people would prefer the Hollywood version, right, where the protagonist is white and there's a perceived innocence that's associated with whiteness in the United States. Right. But when it's Palestinians who are reclaiming their freedom as they ought to. And as anyone in their situation would want to, there is, for some reason, a disconnect. And they're called fugitives, right? They're called terrorists by the Israeli media. And in reality, they're not terrorists. The terrorists are the people who have imprisoned them and hundreds of thousands of other people over the course of the entirety of the occupation. The terrorists are the people who are raising entire villages, burning olive trees, shooting children. The terrorists are not the men who dug their freedom with a spoon. Yep. We have to keep in mind also that this isn't the first time that Palestinians have escaped from Israeli prisons. This has been done time and again, going all the way back to 1958. The Shatta prison ex uh, escape was probably the biggest prison break since 1948, where 190 Palestinian prisoners attempted to seize control of the Shatta prison north of the Jordan Valley. And after fighting between inmates and the wardens, 11 prisoners and two wardens were killed, but 77 Palestinians managed to successfully escape the prison, which is insane. 77 prisoners. Then you also have the Gaza prison escape in 1987, where several individuals managed to escape the fully Israeli controlled and occupied prison in Gaza. They were all eventually tracked down and killed. One of them was recaptured. And I think even though these stories often end with recapture or death to the prisoners, I haven't managed to find a story where you know, they were able to maintain their freedom. Same thing like in 1996, there was the Kafaryona prison escape. Those two individuals who escaped were rearrested by the occupation, even if it took several years. But that's not really the point, right? It's not, it's not the point that they're going to get recaptured and then it's not going to be worth it and that they will have failed. 
the point is that they did it in the first place. And the point is that we continue to do this, you know, going back several decades, like Sophie was talking about, even in resistance to British colonialism, the point is that we're going to keep doing this because the colonial system, which subjugates every aspect of our existence to its whims and restricts every aspect of our existence, depriving us of freedom, is not going to be able to continue to do so in the face of our resistance. So, so that's the point. The point is that we have resisted always and that we're going to keep resisting always. And it doesn't matter if ultimately we are unsuccessful in these moments, because this is just an indication of things to come. And we do have examples from the United States where individuals struggled for their freedom, were broken out of prison, and now live freely, right? Asada Shakur is one of the preeminent examples. She was charged with you know, murder of a police officer and imprisoned. And then they broke her out of prison. And now she lives as a free woman in Cuba. There is still a FBI wanted ad for her, even as recently as Obama reiterated that her arrest was still a high priority engagement. And it's like, just, just give up, like recognize when you've lost. You know, but anyway, shout out to Asada Shakur and the Black Liberation Movement. The Soledad brothers also tried to liberate George Jackson from prison, and they were murdered by the sheriffs who killed the judge that they had taken hostage as well. Everybody should read her autobiography. It's one of the preeminent books when it comes to the struggle for liberation. After the Palestinians managed to escape and dig a tunnel for freedom, the Zionists cracked down on their family members, right? Several Israeli military vehicles invaded the town of Ya'abad, abducted six Palestinians, including the father of political prisoner who recently escaped. Soldiers injured many Palestinians, including school children and uprooted trees. Media sources in Janine said soldiers invaded Yabad before storming and ransacking the home of father of Monadel, one of the six Palestinians who liberated themselves from the Zionist concentration camps. They added that the soldiers interrogated the father and his family while ransacking their home before abducting him. The soldiers also abducted a former political prisoner identified as Radad and his brother Shadad from their home in Araba town, southwest of Jenin. The two are brothers of Mahmoud and Mohammed. The invasions led to protests before the soldiers shot a student with a rubber-coated steel bullet in the head and caused dozens of school children and residents in their homes to suffer the effects of tear gas. The soldiers also invaded Anin village west of Janin and demolished a parking structure in addition to bulldozing lands and uprooting olive trees near the annexation wall. So long story short, a lot of collective punishment a lot of retaliation against ordinary people living their lives because the Israeli colonial regime went totally ballistic and started to, again, once again, have a global meltdown 
because of the very humiliating defeat that they suffered in this great escape. Imagine having a multi-billion dollar budget and you are bested by six dudes with a spoon. A rusty spoon. That's tough. That's a tough one to swallow. That's a real rocky road. Yeah. (laughs) How many ice cream jokes can we make? (laughs) Honestly, I'm going to milk it. You know what? Yeah, you could you could do a whole set of ice cream. That was jokes. another that was another <laughs> ice cream joke. <laughs> I, yeah. I actually missed that one. You uh it went right oh. over your head. You know what I mean? The ground above the tunnel. Was that an ice cream joke? Uh no, that was a joke about the tunnel. Okay. Speaking of Ben and Jerry's, let me just give this really quick update. About Arizona which incidentally, who knew, was super Zionist. Did you know that Arizona is going to be murdering the prisoners with the same gas that was used in Auschwitz? Oh, that's also Arizona? That's Arizona. Why haven't the Zionists been upset about that? They hate, they call everything anti-Semitism. You Google Israel, Israel's like you're an anti-Semite. Yet... They can go ahead and literally murder people with the same gas that was used in Auschwitz and Zionists have nothing to say. It's almost like they don't care about threats to Jews or the Holocaust at all. And they only weaponize it against Palestinians when it's convenient. That's what it seems like to me. I think they're pretty pleased with Arizona, actually, because on September 10th, we heard word that Arizona has decided to sell off $93 million worth of Unilever bonds. And again, if you remember, Unilever is the parent company to Ben & Jerry's. They've also announced plans to sell off the remaining $50 million that they have invested over subsidiary Ben & Jerry's decision to stop selling its ice cream in the Israeli-occupied Palestinian territories. The Zionists are actually pretty good at BDS. That's the divestment part. Yeah, right? That's the divestment part. So the state treasurer by the name of Kimberly Yee announced this week that Arizona was mandated by a 2019 state law barring Arizona government agencies from holding investments or doing more than $100,000 in business with any firm that boycotts Israel or its territories. So basically, Arizona is one of those states with the anti-boycott laws on the books. One of 35 states that has now actually divested itself from Ben & Jerry's or its parent company in response to the Ben & Jerry's decision. Other states like Illinois and Florida are, you know, have announced that they too are going to divest from Unilever, but that has yet to be confirmed. Where will they get ice cream? Who knows? But I think, look, it's crazy because... (laughs) The fact that you must purchase, you must do business with Israel. And if you don't, that's against the law. Like that is what, that is what is at issue here. That's what, that's what's at stake here. It is so important for these states to do business with Israel that they have outlawed not doing business with Israel. That's insane. And then people have the nerve to be like, ah, what happens to all the Zionists if 
we free Palestine and you're asking about a stolen house, what happens to the thief? Who cares? Who cares? Maybe dust off that American passport you just flew in with. Go back to being a settler in your own country. Yeah, right. Just so you know, Republican Governor Doug Ducey of Arizona tweeted, the Ben and Jerry's decision is, quote, discrimination. And Arizona will not do business with a company that boycotts Israel. In 2016 and 2019, I signed bills to make sure of it. Quote, Arizona stands with Israel because, you know, it's totally not against the law for states to have their own foreign policy and make declarations of that. But, you know, who cares? It's just the Constitution. Deucey, huh? Deucey. That sounds, guy's foolish. That like guy's douchey. full of shit. <laughs> sounds like douchey. Well, let me just talk about what these Zionists are doing online. Sure. As we've got a Zionist company that sells spyware to governments linked to fake Black Lives Matter and Amnesty International websites that are used as hack targets, according to a new report. Researchers from the Citizen Lab at the University of Toronto, who worked with Microsoft, issued a report about the potential targets of Kandiru, a occupied Yaffa-based firm marketing untraceable spyware that can infect and monitor computers and phones. In 2017, the firm had sales worth nearly 30 million, serving clients in the Gulf, Western Europe, and Asia, according to a lawsuit reported in an Israeli source. Kandaru has operations with Uzbekistan, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE, Forbes has reported. One way the company's spyware allegedly infects targets is through web domains, and the researchers found that the firm's software was associated with URLs masquerading as NGOs, women's rights advocates, activist groups, health organizations, and news media. Citizen Lab research uncovered websites tied to Kandaru with domain names such as Amnesty Reports, Refugee International, Women's Studies, Euro News and CNN 24-7. Activists who are targeted may click on links that appear to be from trusted sources and then be taken to a site with innocuous content or redirected elsewhere. But this website, which was specially registered for the purpose of exploiting their computer and would run code in the background that would silently hijack control of their computer. The malware could enable persistent access to essentially everything on the computer, (laughs) potentially allowing governments to steal passwords and documents or turn on microphones to spy on a victim's surroundings. The user wouldn't recognize anything was amiss, said Mark Zak, a senior research fellow with Citizen Lab. And this dovetails nicely into the story of Pegasus, right? The Pegasus Project which was recently reported on by a slew of media organizations, NPR, CNN, all of them. But don't click their links. You never know. The Pegasus Project, a consortium of international media outlets, says is a leaked list of some 50,000 phone numbers showed that governments around the world sought NSO's cell phone hacking technology Pegasus to spy 
on people or mark them as potential targets, whether inside or beyond their own borders. It says the phone numbers selected by governments for surveillance belong to a staggering array of potential targets, including political dissidents, human rights activists, 180 journalists in nearly two dozen countries, a Dubai princess escaping her father, the fiance of slain Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi, and 14 heads of state, including French president and Muslim women hater, Emmanuel Macron. I love the way you say Ma- Macron. It's Macron. He deserves Macron. it. Call him Macron. He deserves yeah, it. Yeah, I'm not going to pronounce his name in his language. Fuck <laughs> him. <laughs> Macron. That's, uh, that's mackerel as far as so, I care. Hold on. Let me just see if I understand this correctly. So the Zionists developed some technology that is like intentionally misleading activists who are trying to find actual websites of NGOs like Amnesty International or other human rights websites, right? And they're replacing them with fake websites that if you click on, then will steal shit on your computer and expose you to all this malware that it's going to take all your data and spy on you. That's what they're doing. Yeah. So again, shout out to our researcher, Siriana. Be careful the links you're clicking. Yeah, right. Okay. So so that's one thing. And then the Pegasus thing is a different thing. This other technology to governments to spy on human rights activists and lawyers and individuals involved in resisting governmental domination And we know that that software was used to spy on people like Jamal Khashoggi before he was brutally murdered by the Saudi regime and other activists and individuals, including heads of state who are not like great, you know, like Macron, but, you know, they're also on this list. I'd be surprised if we're not on that list. (laughs) (laughs) Michael, you want to be on that list so badly. (laughs) I just know that I am. I could live another day without being on that list, to be honest. Not me. Um, I'm always like, are they watching me? Like, they're probably watching me. But then I'm like, eh, there's a lot of people doing this work. Like, are they really watching me? You know? It's they probably like a, are. It's a back and forth where I'm like, eh, I'm not that relevant. Yeah, but I might be relevant. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't know. Let me tell you, the Zionists were watching me when I had like 400 followers on TikTok. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. They they try and stomp you out early. Yeah. So yeah, they're yeah. definitely watching. I hope they're enjoying our content. They probably are. It's good stuff. Maybe some of them came over to our side. You know, I, I still continue nah. to get messages from former Zionists that are like, thank you for what you do. Your content was instrumental in helping me break down these walls and understand that Zionism is racism. And well, that's great. In my path to becoming an anti-Zionist. So, look, I know that it's worked before. If we're not inspiring you to become anti-Zionist, hopefully we inspire you to kill yourself. I don't know. <laughs> we can't say that, Michael. No, I'm going to keep it. <sighs> okay, well, I'm not laughing at it. You already did. It happened. Shit. They should do Zionism on themselves. They should that's do what Zionism I'm on themselves. 
That has been another episode of the Palestine Pod. Thank you all so much for listening. We so appreciate all of your comments, your likes, your reviews. Please hang out with us at www.palestinepod.com for all of our sources and information following up on all of the claims that we made. Go ahead and follow us on Instagram at the Palestine Pod. And if you want to reach out to us, send us an email at palestinepod at gmail.com. That has been another episode of the Palestine Pod. Thank you all so much. Have a great day. We got another really good review, by the way. I saw. This podcast is honest and critical, so intelligent and accessible, often heartbreaking yet filled with optimism. I'm like, wow, we're doing all that? As a Black American, I feel deeply connected and empathetic with the Palestinian struggle for liberation and love that they frequently highlight the similarities between BLM, Indigenous land back, and free Palestine movements. Our struggles are unique, but our quest against capitalism, settler colonialism, and imperialism are one and the same. This is a deeply informative podcast led by two hosts who are incredibly engaging and their guests are equally entertaining and knowledgeable. Seriously, just subscribe. I love that. Yeah, leave us more reviews like that. That was good. Seriously. Thank you to that reviewer. I love the two hosts. This is another one. They balance and complement each other perfectly, and the guests are a pleasure to listen to. Hey, and shout out to everybody on YouTube calling me hot. I appreciate that. Yeah, what is that? There's like a Michael fan club happening on YouTube. Everyone's like, is Michael single? Is Michael high today? What did Michael do today? Michael, oh my God, you look fresh today. Michael, my, it's like, what's going on here? I did get a haircut. Knew, Thank you all for noticing. Who knew that one way to becoming a heartthrob was by hosting your own podcast about Palestine? Honestly, it never occurred to me that that would be a byproduct. Somebody asked me recently, they were like, how deeply are you swimming in Palestinian And I was like, that is an extremely uncomfortable thing to ask. So, but wait, was it a Palestinian that asked you that? It was a Yemeni. It was a Yemeni. Okay, that's fine. We'll take it. But the answer is uh, from the river to the sea. (laughs) That's horrible. That is horrible. You. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Palestinian women are usually very modest, and I almost never talk about sex with them out of respect for sure Islam. for the tradition and the culture. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Most Palestinian women that I know are far too focused on liberating Palestine than to <laughs> be sliding in my DMs. But uh, you know, for the ones who aren't, holler at me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're trying not to die in any event, right? Pandemic's just one way you could die. You know, people forget they could get run over by a bus every day. Not me. I drive the bus. (laughs) Hey, look, I just got my prints from Malek. Okay. I I have to frame this. They look great. So gorgeous. The pictures... The colors are amazing. They're so bright, very fast shipping. So we're going to, if you haven't checked it out, check out our website under the page with Malak Matar's episode, and you can find a link to her Etsy.